Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. It's less than two months since the now infamous mini budget, which shocked financial markets, sent the pound tumbling to a historic low, sent our debt repayments soaring, and brought down both the Chancellor of the Exchequer and the Prime Minister. With the government still picking up the pieces, all eyes are now on the new Chancellor, who will address the House of Commons tomorrow with the not-so-mini autumn budget. Jeremy Hunt may have reversed many of his predecessors' disastrous policies only three days into the job, but he still faces a deficit so huge that many are calling it black hole. Financial black hole. Black hole. There's an eye-watering black hole in the public finances. We're told the size of that black hole is around 50 to 60 billion pounds. So what can the Chancellor do to fix our finances? With talk of tax rises and spending cuts looming, should we be looking back to an earlier version of this government to learn from the mistakes of austerity? You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, the budget. Are we about to get austerity 2.0? I'm David Smith, economics editor of the Sunday Times. I occasionally take part in pub quizzes, and usually it's all about naming African capitals and things like that. But uh, the question came up, can you name the last four chancellors of the Exchequer? And this was a question made for me, which I could answer. I could see people scratching their heads around the pub. I got that one right, but I wouldn't like to be asked that question again in, in two or three years' time, because I think someone like Nadim Zahawi, I think he'll be soon forgotten in that role, if not other roles that he does in politics. Unfortunately, we didn't win the quiz that night, but, um, but that was a question for <laughs> Those me. Those African capitals caught you out. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. So we've had, a, as you say, a revolving door of chancellors recently, one particular figure suddenly seems to be back on the scene in terms of the Treasury. 
that's George Osborne, a man who was Chancellor for a number of years. Just remind us a bit about him. I first met George Osborne back in 2005, and he had been appointed Shadow Chancellor not by David Cameron, who he worked with very closely later, but by Michael Howard, who was then the, the Tory leader. And the two things that struck me, one is that a bit like policemen, chancellors are getting younger or shadow chancellors are getting younger. So he's, he was very young at that time. <laughs> After the 2005 election defeat, Michael Howard gave him an extraordinary promotion, making him shadow chancellor at still only 33. The other thing was that he seemed very level-headed. And the message that I took away from my meeting with him then was that he thought, you know, unlike the experience we've had recently, that uh, he had to educate the Tory party into the idea that tax cuts had to be earned. You know, they couldn't just be lifted out of thin air, that you had to get control of the public finances before you could cut taxes. So he was young, but he was quite grown up in his attitude then, I think, back in 2005. And... He probably needed to be level-headed because when he actually got to do the job for real, when he became Chancellor in 2010 after the election with a, a coalition government, they were walking into fairly extraordinary circumstances. It was the worst day on Wall Street since the crash of 1987. What's going on in the stock market is a sideshow to a housing and debt problem in this country. And so within the space of 24 hours, two of the biggest names in U.S. investment banking have disappeared. They will talk about this for generations to come. Mr. Speaker, let me start by placing squarely before the House of Commons and the British public the economic situation facing our country. Much of Europe now appears to be heading into a recession. Well, the economic backdrop in 2010 was that we just had the biggest recession since the war. We'd had the financial crisis. The banks had to be propped up and rescued by the government in the autumn of 2008. The economy was still reeling from that shock, from the idea that banks are no longer safe. You know, before the financial crisis, we were used to the idea that government debt should be very low. So as a percentage of our national income, our GDP, the then government, the Labour government, had a rule that it shouldn't go above 40. And it was much higher than that as a result of the crisis. And famously, the incoming chief secretary, the deputy to George Osborne, received a note from his Labour predecessor, Liam Byrne, saying, I'm afraid there's no money left. And Liam Byrne obviously regretted that later because it became a core celeb. I'm afraid there is no money. Kind regards and good luck, Liam. The traditional note left by every chief secretary since the 1930s, I might I add. don't think so. A note saying, note, I'm afraid there is no money. Go back over the political history. You can see the record there. Look, the answer... Did you regret leaving that note? Because it has, frankly, dogged you every day since uh, you wrote it. Nothing more than an old treasury tradition that goes back to the 1930s. And... Uh, every uh, successor to a chief secretary at the Treasury has honoured the privacy uh, of that. Unfortunately, that wasn't um, something my successor chose to do. But also, the markets were very jumpy about the UK in a way that they've recently become jumpy again. You know, one prominent American bond fund manager said that the UK was resting on a bed of nitroglycerine. We were very risky. We'd suffered from the financial crisis. So, so that was the environment in which he became Chancellor in 2010. And for people who, who 
vaguely remember the headlines. I mean, back then, as you say, we'd had almost a, a run on various banks. The government had had to bail them out. And that was a lot of government public money, which did leave us with a bit of a black hole. And there are obviously parallels with where we are now. So just take us back to how we dealt with it then. What did George Osborne do? How, how did he go about filling the gap? George Osborne started off with, you know, he put in place something that's become quite important recently, the existence of the OBR, the Office for Budget Responsibility, which is the government's economic and fiscal watchdog. But mostly for the next six years, George Osborne focused on controlling public spending, cutting public spending. And that took two forms, I think. One was that capital spending, you know, infrastructure spending by the government was cut. It's politically more easy to cut that because people don't notice it so much. But there was also big cuts in many public services. The NHS was notionally protected from these, but many other public services, local government was cut back, education, across the board cuts. And this became austerity, or as, or as we now call it, austerity 1.0, because we might might be heading down that road again. So it was tough. And the whole idea of it was that we had to tackle that budget deficit. George Osborne became obsessed with something called the AAA rating, what the ratings agencies give to the UK as a sovereign borrower in financial markets. AAA meant is the highest you can have. He was obsessed with the idea we wouldn't lose that, we couldn't lose that. If we don't deal with our debts in Britain, then there will be no growth, no jobs. People won't invest in our country. Britain has to confront its problems. That is the clear message from the rating agency today. We did lose it, but uh, you know some of that loss came a little bit later. But uh, you know the idea was people didn't trust the UK public finances and the UK economy after the financial crisis. That trust had to be brought back by very tough measures. And the reason that that AAA rating from the credit ratings agencies mattered, I suppose, was because it would change the rate of interest we would be able to borrow at. Exactly right. You know, some things you can't draw a parallel between what happens to households or individuals and what happens to governments. But in this respect, it does. So if you and I have a bad credit rating, we find it more difficult to borrow. We can only borrow at higher interest rates. And it's exactly the same for governments. And just remind us, for people living through it, for people paying taxes, for people living in the country at the time, how did they feel the impact of those cuts? Where did they fall? And how bad were they? Well, you know, the austerity lasted for quite a long time. So even when the Conservatives won a majority in the 2015 general election, one of the things that George Osborne then did was impose a prolonged freeze on working age benefits. So people on lower incomes, people who were dependent on benefits, really suffered quite hard. And also, you know, local authority services, local services, things like libraries, lots of library closures. People noticed, you know, even things like how regularly are the bins collected, you know, a lot of local authorities under pressure. Instead of weekly collections, they had to make them fortnightly and so on. So public services in general were squeezed very hard over that period. We saw that rebound a bit on George Osborne. Ladies and gentlemen, we now have the victory ceremony for the men's 400 metres T38. He was there to present the medals at uh, the Paralympics in, in 2012. The medals tonight will be presented by the Right Honourable George Osborne MP, Chancellor of the Exchequer. And he was surprised to be booed at the presentation ceremony. Chris Brown, Richard. 
First booze that we've heard all week at the Paralympic Stadium. Because he became a bit of a pantomime villain. For a, a generally good-natured crowd, which I think the people who went to watch the Paralympics were, for him to be booed, I think he realised that these things are pretty unpopular. And looking back now, more than a decade on, I mean, was it the right plan? What sort of long-term impact do you think those austerity policies had? I think it went too far. You know, the economy had been damaged during the recession and the financial crisis. The banks were wounded and people argued that austerity, and this was a very powerful argument from a lot of economists, that austerity was exactly the wrong thing to do. Far better to grow your way out of this problem, to let the economy find its feet rather than impose austerity on it before it had had a chance to really recover. And the result of that may be reflected in some of the things we still talk about now. The growth has never really got back to pre-financial crisis levels. The, the amount we produce per person or for every hour we work has never got back to the previous rates of growth. And austerity probably played a part in that. It was perhaps too tough for too long and at the wrong time. And it means that you know when subsequent Conservative chancellors have talked about controlling public spending, the spectre of 2010 comes back again. And now, where we might be going there again, it becomes quite difficult because people say, you can't do that. It was a mistake then, it will be a mistake now. And I think it did some damage, damaged public services, many of which have yet to recover properly. But it also affected the debate and affected the whole argument about whether uh, this is ever the right thing to do. Coming up... If 2010 was austerity 1.0, how have we ended up resurrecting the policy so quickly? These are like the four economic horsemen of the apocalypse, or a flock of black swans, as people might call them. That's after a quick message from a colleague. Hello, welcome to Off Air with Jane and Fee. I'm Jane Garvey. And I'm Fee Glover. And this is the new and exclusive home of our joint podcasting exploits. Aren't we grand? <laughs> Every Monday to Thursday evening, we talk all things fact, fun, nonsense, utter gibberish, you name it, we talk about it. We also find ourselves joined by the great and the good. That makes it sound accidental, doesn't it? <laughs> so join us for Off Air with Jane and Fee. Monday to Thursday on the Free Times radio app and wherever else you get your podcasts. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? 
Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one of a kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. David, as we approach the current economic problems we face... We have two new characters at the helm. Just tell us a little bit about Rishi Sunak and Jeremy Hunt. Yeah, I think it is a bit like having two chancellors running the country because Rishi Sunak was a natural as a chancellor. He'd been chief secretary of the treasury. He understands economics pretty well. And he proved himself to be pretty bold during the pandemic. We never had anything like the furlough scheme, for example, before in the UK. I don't know to what extent he had thought about some of the other things he's now having to address as prime minister. Being chancellor is a multifaceted job, but in the end, you know what you've got to do. Being prime minister, anything can come your way. Jeremy Hunt has, I think, become the the sort of ultimate safe pair of hands in government. I would not have thought of him as the natural replacement for um, Kwasi Kwarteng when Liz Truss decided she needed a new chancellor, because, you know, Jeremy has not had any previous Treasury experience, but he's put himself out there. He did a series of broadcast interviews. He's been accessible. He's not concealing the difficulty that that the government believes it it is facing. You didn't come into politics to put up taxes and cut spending, did you? No. uh, So what's gone wrong? How how have we got here? I mean, we've had Conservatives in power for 12 years. Yes. um, And, uh, you know, in that time, we've been one of the highest growing economies in the G7, and we've seen unemployment fall to its lowest levels for 40 years. But we've also had uh, a global pandemic, uh, a global energy crisis, some, some huge shocks. And the fact that I, as a Conservative Chancellor, will be putting up taxes, I hope tells people that this will not be an ideological budget. I will be taking the difficult decisions that are right for the country. And with a situation where we've, as you put it, effectively got two chancellors at the helm, we suddenly hear that there might be a third in the offing. Is it true that George Osborne's been spied around the Treasury again? It is said that, and my colleague Oliver Shah wrote a piece about this. I wouldn't say that um, George Osborne is running policy at all, but I think it is sensible, particularly for someone who's new to the Treasury like Jeremy Hunt, just to have someone who's got his back and can tell him what tricks the officials might get up to and so on. That seems to me where the extent of it, and rather than this being a, a George Osborne-run policy. I think both sides would run a mile from that suggestion. And given that George Osborne came in as Chancellor amid difficult economic circumstances, just remind us, in terms of economics, where does the economy stand? What is Jeremy Hunt coming in to fix? 
it's quite rare to get a real-life economic experiment of the kind we saw in September. I can announce that we are cutting stamp duty. I can announce today that we will cut the basic rate of income tax to 19 pence in April 2023. But I'm not going to cut the additional rate of tax today, Mr Speaker. I'm going to abolish it altogether. From April the 23rd, we will have a a single higher rate of income tax. What that did, as you'll remember, is spark a massive market reaction of a kind I've never seen before. To see such a dramatic rejection of it by financial markets, sterling falling to its lowest ever level against the dollar. So this was chaotic, it was dramatic, and as I say, unprecedented. And part of what Jeremy Hunt has had to do is to confront that uncertainty about the UK, which goes back to what we were saying about 2010. And in this case, it was worse than 2010. I mean, the UK's reputation suffered more in those few weeks that Liz Truss was prime minister than it did around the time of the financial crisis. This was the time when people really thought the UK was turning into a a banana republic, you know, unfunded tax cuts. Can you trust the currency? Can you trust government bonds anymore? So it's having to be a really safety first approach to budget making to make sure that whatever happens in the autumn statement, it has to go down well in the financial markets. It can't afford to have any kind of adverse reaction. It has to go down well. The other context of it is, of course, that the economy is very weak. You've got what I would call the triple whammy. You've got interest rates going up, taxes probably going up, and spending being cut, and at a time when the economy is very weak. So it's a very difficult inheritance that Jeremy Hunt has got, and I think he doesn't really disguise that. He doesn't pretend everything is going to be fine. He knows it's going to be difficult. So the markets have had their their confidence in, in the country shaken after that mini-budget. We seem to be dipping into a recession already. Just give us a sense of the sort of numbers that are being quoted. How big a black hole do we think there is in the national budget? The black hole, the 50 to 60 billion black hole that is being widely reported and not denied at all by the Treasury, is how much over time you have to raise in extra taxation and by reducing public spending to make sure that in five years you're getting debt falling relative to GDP. So that's what it's all about. And and why why is there a black hole? Well, the black hole exists in comparison with where we were in the spring in which the public finances seem to be in good shape. Three things have happened. One is that economic growth has suffered. We weren't looking in the early part of the year at the idea that, as the Bank of England now thinks, we could have the longest recession since the 1920s. We were looking at a period of recovery from the pandemic. So that has changed. Inflation is higher. There's a direct link between inflation and the amount the government has to spend. And the other one is, you know, we've got a lot of debt now. The government's debt is around $2.4 trillion. And the debt interest has been remarkably low for a long time because interest rates were low. And now interest Mm. rates are going up. And now the cost of borrowing for government in the markets has gone up. So the debt interest bill is becoming one of the biggest items of expenditure for the government after being one of the smallest items just two or three years ago. So these things add up. And those between them have given us the black hole. And for Jeremy Hunt, going into a budget, knowing he's got this looming gap, 
he's trying to fill, and he seems to be quoting that sort of 50 billion figure. What are his options? How can he go about doing something about it? The main options, you know, the four big taxes in the economy are um, income tax, national insurance, VAT and corporation tax. So any of those you could increase. But I don't think they're going to do that. And so I think what we're going to see is an exercise in stealth taxation. One of the ways of stealthily taxing people is that if, for example, you know, the point at which we start to pay income tax, it's just over 12,500. Now, if you leave it at that level for a few years, then more and more people get dragged into the tax net. So that is a good, sneaky, stealthy way of getting in more revenue. So you're stealthily raising tax without touching the rates of tax. So there'll be quite a lot of that. On public spending, I think it will be a question of, you know, not bailing out parts of the government like the NHS because they're suffering from higher inflation, but, you know, squeezing them through higher inflation by giving them the existing cash settlements at a time of higher inflation. And then a couple of years later, suggesting that we'll be even tighter on public spending. And I think one of the questions for the autumn statement is whether markets believe that the public spending bit of this is deliverable or whether any of it is deliverable. Quite a lot of it will be deferred for later, deferred possibly for a new government. So will the markets be reassured by that? Markets seem to me to be in a kind of mood to be reassured. They had their attack on UK credibility, and I don't think they'd want to repeat that. But of course, anything is possible. And you described how back in 2010, George Osborne, you know, partly ideologically, didn't really want to be raising taxes. So a lot of the pressure fell on making cuts to public services. Do you think they're rebalancing that this time? Yes, I think it is much better balanced this time. And the guidance that we're all being given is that 50 to 60% of it will come through public spending, the rest through higher taxation. So that is a uh, is a much more balanced position than was the case in uh, 2010. And, and that would reflect, I think, the approach of the Prime Minister in particular, that he wasn't afraid to raise taxes after the pandemic. Freezing tax thresholds is fair, asking more of those on higher incomes. And we're going to ask large businesses who have made a profit to contribute as well. Two years from now, well past our recovery in 2023, corporation tax on company profits will increase to 25%. I think the balance will be better that um, in the end, you can't do it all through public spending. I think the idea that you can cut these things to the bone and people don't mind That is now ancient history. So, David, in terms of the policies open to Jeremy Hunt now, if we were to take the economy apart and work out what to do, we've talked through potential tax rises and potential cuts to public spending, which is a bit like austerity, but we're hoping it'll be less bleak. Are there any other options? Are there any other creative solutions that we're not talking about? You know, one of the things that drives the fact that the OBR, the Office of Budget Responsibility, is going to be quite gloomy about the public finances is the fact that it is quite pessimistic about our long-term ability to grow the economy. So since 2007-8, since the financial crisis, growth has been barely 1% a year on average. If you could improve that, 
then you then eliminate the need for tax increases or spending cuts. So that would be the hope. And at the moment, I think there is enormous pessimism about our ability to grow. We seem to have settled down to a very mediocre rate of economic growth, and people don't know where the spark is going to come from. And I think that is the ultimate challenge. It would help, you know, don't make this a Brexit discussion, but it would help if we had a a better trading relationship with the EU that could be transformational in terms of giving us stronger economic growth. So those are the kind of things you need to think about. I fear that we're into a period now where it's just about repairing the public finances, making things okay again, getting inflation down. But once we've done that, there'll still be a growth problem if we don't try and do something about it. Well, talk to me about that, because, David, I'm sure you've heard, whilst lots of people are very worried about austerity 2.0 and whether that would stop us growing again for, for a number of years, there have also been economists questioning whether we really have quite such a big gap to fill. Have we simply got the numbers wrong? I mean, it's a debate worth having. and I mean, as the OBR itself would concede, only small changes in assumptions, small changes in forecasts can produce quite big changes in the outlook for the public finances. It doesn't take much to turn you from a big deficit into a surplus. But I think in the end, you know, this is a bit like a football match. You may disagree with the referee's decision, but it's the referee. We saw the consequences in September of a government which ignored its own fiscal watchdog, didn't use it, didn't use the OBR. So it's unthinkable that this chancellor and this prime minister would have an assessment from the OBR and then say, well, we don't really believe it, so we're not going to take any notice of it. You know, that would produce the kind of adverse reaction that they are desperate to avoid. So people may disagree with the referee, and sports fans often do, but, you know, it is the arbiter. There isn't a choice of different referees here. There's only one referee, and that's the one that matters. And just finally, David, it's quite rare to have two big economic crises like this in the course of effectively one government. The Conservatives have been in power since 2010. Normally, between big events like this, you'd kind of have time for a bit of a a rethink on economics almost, on sort of the lessons you've learned from the last time. Is there a, a sense that perhaps we're still fighting the last economic war? Have we adapted our ideas around how we manage the economy enough to be able to cope with what's coming? It's a very good question. I, I think I sometimes think of these crises that we've seen over the past few years. We had the financial crisis, which we've talked about. Then we had Brexit and the Trump trade wars very close to each other. Then we had the pandemic, and then we've got the cost of living crisis, largely from Russia, Ukraine, although it might, might have been there anyway. And these are like the you know, the four economic horsemen of the apocalypse, or a flock of black swans, as people might call them. So they've come <laughs> thick and fast. And I think the challenge there is that, you know, just as you are getting on your feet after one, another one comes along. The fundamental problem we've got to address, particularly in the UK, is that we thought we were uh, better at resisting shocks than we are. And we need to think about if these shocks are going to keep coming along, How do we respond to them? How do we respond to them intelligently? How do we respond to them without making people poorer, without increasing the economic damage? Otherwise, it's a little bit of a downward spiral. We need need to do better, and we've got to think more imaginatively. We can do better than we are at the moment, I think.
You've been listening to Stories of Our Times, a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of The Times and The Sunday Times, with me, Manveen Rana, and my guest, The Sunday Times economics editor, David Smith. You can find all of David's work at thetimes.co.uk with a subscription. This episode was produced by Taryn Siegel. The executive producer is Kate Ford, and sound design was by David Crackles. Thanks for listening. See you again tomorrow. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app. You can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.